Well, it's good to be with you today and to uh, present God's Word. But I realize when I'm standing up here that uh, many of you probably don't know who I am. So I thought I'd share a little bit about myself. Um, First of all, as you probably already know, I am blessed to be married to the most beautiful, charming, witty, and intelligent woman I have ever encountered, Trudy. And of course, I'm biased. And I'm the proud parent of two children and four grandchildren. Uh, We purchased Luke and Sandy Vandeweg's home just south of the church here, a few miles away. And uh, we both consider ourselves always on mission and allow the Lord to surprise us with uh, the many good things he has in store. And the other thing is, is we don't understand the word, as I think many of you don't understand it as well. We don't understand the word retire. So uh, we find that God, oftentimes, he retreads us for other ministries uh, along the way. I grew up on Bainbridge Island, primarily, and uh, was a close neighbor. This is an interesting factoid. I was a close neighbor of John Worthington, one of the six sons of the Worthingtons, William Jenner and Grace Amelia Legg, here uh, in Quilsing. Um, So it's a a rather small world. Um, For 35 years, I I was pastoring churches from Bellevue, Washington, first at at First Presbyterian in Bellevue, and then um, all the way over on the other side of the east, on the east coast at Hackensack, New Jersey. And I pastored in both Presbyterian churches and in Christian Reformed churches. And then in addition, I was asked to come and and serve in the Netherlands for three years to coach and to come alongside pastors there, as well as lead a church in the heart of of Amsterdam. So um, that was really a great experience for Trudy and me because she actually grew up in the Netherlands. So it just kind of, well, there's no, no such thing as coincidence, but it just happened that way. So that was a marvelous experience for us. My career path, though, has been in several different directions. Um, I've owned and operated a landscape management business uh, on the east side in Bellevue and in the Medina area. And with Trudy, my soulmate, we owned and operated an international Montessori training school. We were the first ones to put it online. And uh, she was always the brains behind that. I was just doing the grunt work alongside of her, so I followed her lead in doing that. So um, the Lord's just um, taken us down multiple various paths, and he's blessed us along the way. Uh, Presently, I still stay active, uh, life coaching and offering spiritual guidance to men, and uh, I usually take about five or six men at a time, and we just kind of walk through some things that have to do with spiritual direction. So I do, I still do that. And last but not least, uh, Trudy and I uh, love the Quilcene Food Bank. Uh, every Wednesday, we make the route out to Coil. And uh, that's kind of like our second home out there uh, in Coil. We, we love the people out there. And it's just a marvelous experience for us to be out there every Wednesday with them. Well, today we're going to be looking at two texts. We're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah 60, 1 through 6, 
And we're also going to look at Matthew 5, 14 through 16. The first, of course, is from the prophet Isaiah, and the second is in Matthew 5, where Jesus tells his followers about kingdom life. But first, Isaiah. In his prophecy, he brings God's message to the people of Israel in two parts. The first 39 chapters is primarily a judgment for their sins. And because of this, they are carried off into exile first um, by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. Then in chapters 40 through 66, it's a rather large book, uh, Isaiah offers them a message of hope. Their sin has been dealt with and God's people can return home and look forward to a future kingdom with a new king, a Messiah, one who will rescue them. And it is here in chapter 60 where Isaiah helps them envision their new home, a renewed Jerusalem, the city at the center of their entire spiritual thought and praise. And in order to read Isaiah, though, we, and I think also with many other prophetic books, we have to use our imagination. We have to engage in it. C.S. Lewis uh, saw imagination as a mindset where we want to see with other eyes. We want to feel with other hearts as well as with our own. And then he said, we demand windows. And the prophets do that for us. They give us these windows. And Isaiah does it in this passage about light and its effect. And I want you to notice as I read both of these scriptures how attractive light is and how it draws us in. First reading from Isaiah 61 through 6, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Arise, Jerusalem, let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness, as black as night, covers all the nations of the earth. But the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried back home. Your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy. For merchants from around the world will come to you. They will bring the wealth of many lands. Vast caravans of camels will converge on you. The camels of Midian and Ephah. The people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. And now reading from Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16 of Jesus telling his followers about the kingdom and what it looks like, but uh, about who they really are in the kingdom. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Let us pray. Lord God, creator of all things, may my words be faithful to you. And if they are, may they sink deep into our hearts and draw us towards your holiness and help us to be expressions of your redeeming love and your redeeming light. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah, in his opening verse, he speaks of light shining for all to see. And then what he does is very interesting. He puts light in contrast to darkness, which is really one of the best ways that you can pull out the brilliance of light. But unless you're playing a game of hide and seek or um, blind man's bluff where you have to cover your eyes or you're looking up at the stars on a moonless night, darkness is not necessarily our best friend. Uh, I don't like getting up in the middle of the night, stumbling around in a pitch black room, trying to get to the bathroom only to bang up my knee or ram my head into a half open door. But it does happen. Several times, Trudy and I have uh, cycled uh, a rails-to-trails path to the summit of Snoqualmie Pass. And at the west end, there's a, a long tunnel. It's over two and a half miles long, and it's pitch black inside. The first time, we rode it with a friend, and uh, we only had one light on one bike. It happened to be my bike. And I've never heard the end of that in terms of why I didn't provide lights for everybody on the trip. But anyway, that's another story. But this tunnel was so dark, it seemed as if every ray of light was swallowed up by it. We bumped and scraped our way through. And what kept us going was this pin prick of a little tiny light at the other end of the tunnel. A bit bruised and battered, we came out the other end. And as you can probably guess, we were immediately immersed in this warmth of a clear, sunny day. Now, I want you to imagine you are God's chosen people, Israel. And as Isaiah tells them, and he says it four times throughout his prophecy, he says, they are to be a light for all nations. And being a people of place, this city that we have described here in Isaiah, this Jerusalem, was like for many other cultures at that time, it was the place where your God bought up real estate and your God made his home in that place. And God, your God, invited you into his home for the singing and the ceremony, the rituals and the festivals that refreshed and renewed not only you, your family, your tribe, but also your nation. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 9, this was where the glory of the covenants was seen. This was where the temple service and the promises were fresh and alive, and this is where you as a people could be renewed. This city, this place, 
These people were to be a beacon on a hill, your light, God's light to the world. Yet, it had been stripped away from you. You were carried off into exile for 70 years, never to experience the tastes, the smells, the sounds, and the life of this place. You have been living in a dark tunnel for almost two generations. But now, but now, Isaiah says, here you are coming back out of exile from Babylon. And the prophet Isaiah speaks of your light shining for all to see. Yet all you see when you approach this city is one in ruins. It's ripped apart. There is no fortified wall or temple where you celebrate God's presence. It's all torn down. Gone, destroyed. And as a returning Israelite, your imagination must kick in. Because the prophet says there is to be light in this city once again, and it is to radiate out. It will attract nations and it will be changed by and you will be changed by it. And other people will change by it and they will worship your God. And there is more. God's people will be overcome with joy. They will see business and commerce and wealth come streaming in to rebuild and renew them in this place. Read the entire chapter and you will discover throughout that God's people are again and again going to see this light unfold. All nations will come to serve them. Jerusalem will be great again. But historically, this never happens. Later, the city walls and temple, of course, are rebuilt under the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah. But never in the history of Israel does anything come close to what the prophet says here. Just the opposite. Besides a few scant years of independence that were often called into question, and that happened a couple of hundred years later, Israel, God's people, will be occupied and ruled over first by the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Syrians, and finally during our Lord's time here on earth, Rome. This hope this light Isaiah speaks of, it disappears, it goes out, it's extinguished. And over time, those returning to the city, those that are coming out of exile, <clears throat> they grow inward, they become insular, they hibernate, and they think that this light is only meant for themselves. And yet, and yet God's light never goes out. What it does, though, it shows up in some rather peculiar ways, especially in the New Testament. Take, for instance, Matthew's gospel earlier in chapter 2. We're all familiar with the story of the Magi. Now look at it this way from a Jewish perspective. These are pagan astrologers 
who showed up after the long trek west from what we think is modern-day Iraq. So they've come a long way. They travel on the hunch that by following a light in the sky at the other end of their journey, they will find a king to worship. Matthew's readers would be appalled and wondering, how do these pagans show up in what's supposed to be a Jewish story? But they do. And where does this star take them? But to a little boy in a little village, there with his mother, this is the king they are to worship? It's a rather strange light. The little boy grows up. People from all walks of life will follow him, and he will be, as John chapter 8 tells us, the light of the world. What happened, though, to that city, Jerusalem, set on a hill? And it gets even more questionable. In his gospel, John says that those who trust in Jesus, they will be children of light. And as if that is not enough, just as we read in Matthew, Jesus, sitting on a hillside, tells his followers they are to be like a city set on a hill. For we are, says Jesus, we are the light of the world so that the world would see what we do and would praise our Heavenly Father. I don't know about you, but this requires a lot of imagination on my part. For them back then to see themselves and for us today as we follow Jesus, to see ourselves as lights of the world, as brilliant as what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 60. And we could use some light right now in our world, couldn't we? It's that time of the year when light seems in short supply. You've probably heard of the condition SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. I'm not a healthcare professional, but the symptoms are reduced energy, loss of concentration, trouble sleeping, sadness, and depression. They say medically you probably have a vitamin D deficiency. But you must stay active. You must get out. You must be one who gets more light. And at times, I think as followers of Jesus, I think we face our own version of sad. I call it spiritual affective disorder. Perhaps we think our light, Christ's light within us, it isn't burning so bright. We're feeling rather dull and dim, or we may say to ourselves, what light, what hope might I offer a world that is so drastically in need? And it is in need, and it is dark. Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, Syria, South Sudan, and Yemen, to just name a few. The social and cultural polarization in our own country with competing ideas and ideologies, the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, 
not to mention things like the mental health crisis and the drug crisis we face today. And sometimes we just are tempted to hunker down and silo ourselves off in our own little like-minded tribe thinking everyone else is the problem and we're only making the darkness greater. And now, now is the time for our light to shine. We must remind each other about the little ways in the small corners of our world that we are the light of the world. We can speak into situations and we can be that light. A couple of months ago, I was getting a cup of coffee at one of the only two places you can here in Quilsing. I think with Village Store and I think now Catkin. <clears throat> well, you can also at uh, Quillbilly. That's true. There's three. And I was uh, there sipping coffee and I got into a conversation with a young woman, a young mother, who told me how distraught she was over the world that we are living in right now. And she was wondering what kind of a place her daughter would grow up in where violence and hatred and division are common. And even though she felt helpless, she was grasping for hope. She just wanted some rays of light. I tried to encourage her, but wasn't sure it helped until we started to have a conversation about how we, in this little town that we live in, we can have those talks with each other. And whether we're like-minded or not, we can begin to talk about some of the darkness that we face and figure out ways to offer some hope right here in Quilsing. Well, we talked a bit more and ended the conversation, went our separate ways, and it was just a couple of weeks ago that I ran into her again. <clears throat> she had not only had several conversations <clears throat> with other people, but she was offering her light to others. She was offering herself by helping a young couple move back into this town when she had very few resources herself. I don't know if she follows Jesus, but she is piercing the darkness with light. It reminded me of the author Robert Louis Stevenson. As a boy, he was looking out the window, watching a workman go up and down and lighting the gas lamps in the evening. And when asked what he was watching, he says, I see a man poking holes in the darkness. That's us, poking holes in the darkness. You may think your light is insignificant, but it's not. As a follower of Jesus, you, says Jesus, are the light of the world. And wouldn't it be a great exercise that maybe this week or in the coming weeks, you could sit down with each other, we could sit down with each other, and think of the ways that we are already light here. I can already think of many ways <clears throat> that you're bringing light into this community. You work in the schools, good news clubs, fellowship of Christian athletes, the clothes closet, the elders telling us, this is radical, the elders telling us, just take your tithe for the month of December and just spread it out into the, into the community. When Trudy and I heard that, we went, we want to be a part of this. 
I was at the last men's breakfast. We were praying over men and their families. These are ways that we spread the light and imagine how God might use our light in the future. I believe all truth comes from God. If it doesn't, it's a lie. All truth is God's truth. And sometimes it comes to us in these bits and pieces from other people who may not trust in Christ as the giver of all light and hope. Yet their words somehow resonate and they can inspire us as his followers. Such as a poem written by Marianne Williamson entitled, Our Greatest Fear. Perhaps you've read it before, or Our Deepest Fear, excuse me. Um, it's it's, It's a wonderful little poem and I want to read a portion of it to you now because I think it reflects how important our light is as followers of Jesus Christ. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I? to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous. Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. Sisters and brothers, we are light because we follow the one true light. We are light, not because of who we are, but because of the one who gave us his light. And may I be so bold to say that like the Magi, we may go places that we will never imagine or think that God would take us. And they may be strange and they may be outlandish. And God may even surprise us that we can follow a light and be that light. But God calls us to that, especially in the dark corners we see in our world. We are, as Jesus said, we are the light of the world. Pray with me. God of heaven and earth, help us be lights who are never perfect, yet continually being refined by the light of your love, your grace, and your truth. Lights that are engaged here and now, Lights who never judge because you are the one who judges hearts and minds. Lights who serve just as you served us by dying on a cross and raising us to new life. For we long for the day when our light will give way to your light of a new world to come. For we ask this in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.